Welcome. You're listening to Energy Matters in the Classroom with Robin Berlinski, a show that highlights and celebrates the kinetic and potential energy in classrooms across the globe and why it matters. We are heard nationally wherever fine podcasts are available and weekly on the radio at Charleston, South Carolina's 1250 WTMA, Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock from right here at our home base in Charleston, South Carolina. Robin, as I love to say every every show, welcome to your show. Thank you. And uh, we have some business that only you can handle. So jump in, please. <laughs> only me. Yes. So the best thing for you to do, if you're listening to this show and others, and you love it as much as we do, please follow me on Instagram, Robin underscore Berlinski. There's all kinds of great things happening in classrooms that we share and sometimes fun things to win. Ooh, to win. Now you have me intrigued. <laughs> No, you always uh, you always bring it home, and and I'll tell you something. And I'm not just saying this because I'm you know part of this deal, but there's a buzz in the community about this show. There people, is a buzz. People are they said I heard your voice on something, but I recognized Robin Berlinski. They didn't know who I was. <laughs> Robin, <laughs> you're being very the kind. Part. All right. Well, the good news is we have a wonderful guest this podcast, and uh, as we always do. But Frank Baker is the gentleman's name, and let me give you a little taste of his background. Frank Baker is a longtime media literacy educator. He has written four books on the subject and by his own estimate presented hundreds of workshops with teachers around the Palmetto State. In 2019, his lifelong work in media literacy was recognized by UNESCO. And his most recent book has taken him in a new direction, trying to educate young people, many of whom lack essential knowledge about the Holocaust. Frank, welcome to Energy Matters in the Classroom with Robin Berlinski. Thank you, Ron, and thank you, Robin, for this opportunity. Absolutely. We're so excited. And I want to jump in first before we start talking, um, Frank, because, you know, a lot of teachers are listening and parents of children in, you know, K through fifth grade up to eighth grade. Um, and media literacy is a big deal. And I want to just share what it is before we jump right in. And the definition most often cited, and I, I know you're the expert, so uh, have grace with me, but you know, I love that it's a 21st century approach to education. So we're actually teaching kids you know, in the space where they're living right now. I mean, media is everywhere and media literacy provides a great framework to access, analyze, evaluate, create, and participate with messages in a lot of forms um, like print, video, the internet, you know, it builds an understanding of the role of media in society, as well as essential skills of inquiry and self-expression. I mean, it is just robust with 21st century skills that we want all kids to understand. So I just want to start by saying kudos to you and thank you for the work you're doing because you really are changing a lot of the energy in education and in our schools in the Palmetto State. Thank you, Robin. When I hear that definition uh, that you read, I think that's what happens when a group of educators get together and, and try to put it all into one or two or three sentences. I have to tell you what my definition is. Media literacy to me is applying critical thinking to media messages, pure and simple. And, and, and I love that. And, and uh, for 25 years, I've spent uh, a good deal of my time traveling our state and talking to educators about the importance of critical thinking. And, and may I ask, crit and add critical viewing. In fact, I, I'm, I'm here, uh, you, you caught me in Columbia at the State School Librarians Conference, 
And I don't see the phrase critical viewing skills anywhere anymore in education circles. And I think that's one of the missing elements in education. How do we teach young people to be critical viewers. And and Frank, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just got really excited when you said that because think about the profile of the South Carolina graduate. We have the four C's. The four C's of literacy, yeah. the four C's of, of life is critical thinking, creativity, communication, and collaboration. And why wouldn't critical viewing be part of that and embedded in the curriculum naturally? Because that's what kids are doing. I think, Robin, uh, my experience is that we find visual literacy very strong in the elementary grades. But when we get to middle school and high school, I think it falls off the radar screen. Now, visual literacy is strong, uh, in my opinion, in the visual arts as well as it should be. But uh, in a social studies classroom where a teacher might be having students look at an image from the Holocaust, for example, with no caption, how can you infer information? How can you glean information from what you see? And how can we teach students to ask questions? And that media literacy, if, if, if there's not anything, it's, it's about critical inquiry. How do we encourage students to question what they see, read, hear, and consume? And unfortunately today, there's evidence that many of them don't uh, do that. Frank, I'm, I'm enjoying listening to you and Robin speak the same language because it's always fascinating for me, but how does one get into this line of work? It seems so specialized. Take us through where that light bulb moment went off for you and how you you moved in this direction. Ron, thank you for asking. It started with me when I worked in Orlando for the public school system back in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, I was working at the school district's media department, and I was the buyer of films and videos. And I took time one week to sit in classrooms, and I was really appalled when I didn't see any teacher engaging students in any critical viewing skills. I didn't see teachers helping students ask questions about what they were going to see and how the producer of the film or video might frame that message. And so I began investigating critical viewing skills as a part of something larger called media literacy, and I started to gather material and decided I would create a web page, which is still in existence today, the Media Literacy Clearinghouse. And when I moved back to South Carolina, I, I naturally said, I, I need to take this message to even more educators. And I worked at South Carolina ETV for about six years, and that offered me the opportunity to travel the state to all of the education conferences and represent ETV. But at the same time, introduce math and science teachers and others to uh, the importance of the media literacy in the classroom. When you say critical viewing skills, though, what beyond um, a gut reaction, what, what can you teach a student to look for when they're watching either a film or looking at a still picture? Is there a series of questions? Is there a way to process this that you, you try to teach everybody, or is it is it something that I'm completely missing? Well, I can tell you that when I started in media literacy. I was exposed to a series of questions formulated by the Center for Media Literacy, uh, then based in Los Angeles. And the the questions were really rather simple. Uh, Who's the author? Uh, What is their purpose? Uh, What techniques are they using to get my attention or make a message believable? How might people different from me see a message differently? And, And why is a message being sent? Now, 
those questions have been expanded uh, today because at the time the, the primary media was television. Well, today we've got the Internet. But those same questions can be applied to TikTok, to Instagram, to uh, Twitter, because uh, we know young people are spending an enormous amount of time on these social media platforms. And, in fact, I had a science teacher tell me here in Columbia um, the student saw a, a TikTok that said the Earth is flat, and he's questioning whether the Earth is actually flat or oh, not. <laughs> yeah, that's the stage that, that we're at. And um, CBS recently did a piece on science literacy in which teachers are, science teachers are saying the same thing. Students are coming into the classroom. Uh, they've seen a video um, on a, a video sharing site um, which says, you know, climate change is a hoax. And they are questioning their science teachers because they're believing what they see in social media without question. Um, hold on. I want to jump in. I So... You know, like you, Frank, I've been in education for a very long time and I, I see like kind of the blessing and the curse in this because there's there's opportunity there to say, you know, you want your kids questioning things. And I understand that we don't want them forming opinions and making them the truth, but being open to exploring possibilities. So if one of my students came to me and said, I saw on TikTok that the world is flat, I would say, oh, okay, well, let's explore that. Let's look yeah. into that. Show me why that is true. And you've got some really deeper understanding, but more importantly, you have motivation to prove me wrong and to prove the earth is flat. But a lot of, a lot of education, a lot of learning is going to come from that. So am I right about that? Absolutely. Robin, what you're talking about is opportunity. Yes. We have an opportunity to explore those kinds of things. Unfortunately, many of our schools ban social media use and we don't, um, provide teachers with any professional development on how to include social media in the classroom. So I think there's a lot of fear out there on the part of school administrators and parents and others, and rightfully so. There's content out there that's not uh, appropriate. But I got to tell you, the education classroom of the 21st century, as as you know, is TikTok. Yeah. Um, and YouTube. And the thing, I want to go back to something you said earlier because it it struck a chord with me is the author, the purpose, the message, that's what we do in reading. So this should sure. be very natural for educators to transition that now to to the media literacy and use those same kinds of questioning skills and thinking through. And, you know, it's no different than when we read a book and how great for a teacher to connect the two and do both. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Robin, I wrote a book called Close Reading the Media. Well, and what a great segue. The, Let's talk about that. <laughs> and the book did not sell because you ask teachers what is close reading. They know close reading as it applies to print, but they've not had any training on how to close read a media message. So that's really what Does I Does Ron know what close reading do. means, Ron, as I don't. a parent? Okay. Um, tell him, Frank. I would describe it as you've got an onion in front of you. And you start to peel back the layers of that onion. And so when we read, we're, we're peeling back the layers of uh, the author's purpose, where they came from, what their background is. We want to know as much as we possibly can about that. And, and you know, my fear today is that young people um, uh, see a photograph, but they never know who took the picture. They might see a movie, but they don't know who are the people behind uh, the camera, the director, the cinematographer, 
the costume designer, all of those things. And to me, a lot of media literacy and close reading is understanding that process. Uh, most of our young people have never been, been on a film set. Most of them have probably never been in a, a podcast studio. So they don't know what happens uh, when you create a podcast. And, and I'm, I'm fond of saying what our students know only is what they see on the screen, not how it got to the screen. And that's... So I think there, I'm sorry. It was an obligation to... Uh, I compare myself to Toto and the Wizard of Oz. Toto pulled back the curtain to reveal there was a wizard behind the curtain. Well, I'm Toto. I like to pull back the curtain on the process of media making, and it's not rocket science. Right. But Robin, right. I, I pick up a textbook today. I don't find the, uh, the, the critical viewing skills mentioned or close reading of media messages. And so uh, even the word literacy to most people listening to this podcast means words on a page. It does not mean visual literacy. And um, so true. And I want to add, I want to go back just a little. And then I also want to say, don't think I'm not going to call you Toto next time I see you. Okay. (laughs) But back to the close reading, something you said also that I would add to your onion is that it's bringing, students bring their own experiences to it. So to your example of never seeing the back side of the set or a podcast studio is... They, there's no connection to their own experiences, which is also, pe- you know, a piece of when you're reading and something doesn't make sense, it's because you have experience with it. So you can take your personal knowledge to the page and understand it better. And it sounds like that's the same with media. But doesn't it take a special educator to take this introduction to that level? I mean, we're talking about, I don't mean to sound, uh, you know, uh, like uh, challenging you guys, but... This sounds like something a teacher really needs to be vested in their in their students to not just give them an assignment, but well, to take this to a whole different level of education. I'm going to jump in and Frank and say, all teachers should be invested well, in their students. I, I agree, <laughs> but I mean, this yeah. is fascinating. Well, it sounds like, Frank, you're I, discovering this, that there's a little resistance. I'm asking the question, Robin, uh, of the colleges of education, who's teaching media literacy? And I'm finding not many are. So we're finding teachers who are entering the profession with no media literacy background in college. And I was in Michigan about 10 years ago speaking to the Michigan Council of Teachers of English and keynoting their conference and 350 educators in this ballroom. And I had this prepared speech. And at the last minute, I decided to ask, how many of you got media literacy in your college of education? Not a one hand went up. And then I said, since you've been in the classroom, how much media literacy professional development training have you had? And maybe five hands came up. And my conclusion is you can't teach what you haven't been taught. I, I do want to go back for a moment to our students' love of media. They take pictures, they shoot video, and where do they learn to do that? Not in the classroom. It's outside the classroom. So there are media experiences, both Uh, making media and we know they love to make media and they love to see their media uh, uh, shared all of that is completely separate when they enter the classroom doors the the classroom has for the most part not totally embraced media as an effective way of of learning and and teaching yeah and for the teachers listening that's such a good point you know the name of this podcast is energy matters in the classroom what a great way to ramp up the energy when you allow those kinds of experiences that kids love to do so much, bring it in the classroom and just see the energy 
level increase and the amount of learning that can come from that. I mean, it's such a great opportunity. You are reminding me that several years ago, I took the word STEAM, and I hope your audience knows, science, technology, engineering, art, and math, and I applied it to the movies. How can a teacher use a movie to teach any one of those subjects? And it's eye-opening. So I have a, a web page on my Media Literacy Clearinghouse website called STEAM and the Movies. And so uh, a teacher that wanted to uh, engage students in what's, what does math have to do with film? What does science have to do with film? And I'll just tell you briefly, I, I love to teach students and teachers how to create a flip book because that demonstrates the, uh, uh, the, 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 the perception of the moving image, right? Uh, uh, and that's also a science concept. And, and who are the people who are working in film? It's, we just watched the Academy Awards. What is the Academy Award? The Academy of, T um, of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. That's right. And so these are people who devote their, uh, Ron's a, a, a producer uh, of, of videos. Uh, he knows he has experts in lighting and experts in sound and in motion pictures. Uh, students never see the people behind the camera. They only see what's on that screen, that final production. Frank, can you repeat what you said? What is the website and how can people find you and know more about Steam yeah. and the movies? And we will also, yeah. just so everyone knows, we will include this in the podcast notes as well, but go ahead and say it right now for everyone listening. Yes. My Media Literacy Clearinghouse website is simply my name, frankwbaker.com. And when you get to that page, you will see an abundance of, of information uh, but uh, there's a, a search tool there, and you can search for steam in the movies. You can search for anything. You can search for advertising and propaganda and bias, um, visual literacy. Um, there are literally 100 topics. And when I'm invited to a school, it's, I, want to, I want them to tell me, what is it that you want me to focus on? Um, and, and lately I've been focusing a lot on disinformation and how students need to think critically about what they are consuming. Because many of them are are uh, reading the news, but what they're reading might be um, um, a paragraph or a phrase, and they don't really think about the source of it. So if somebody says something that sounds outrageous, they might forward it without any thought to whether it's accurate or not. And I, I'm very big with the word verification. I don't think enough people, including our students, stop, think, and verify before they move on. And, and that's got to be taught. I actually had a teacher tell me recently, Frank, my kids don't care if the news is fake. And I said, if that's a prevailing <laughs> oh, attitude, man. we better deal with their apathy. All right, Frank, I got to jump in. You're a renaissance man. I get that. We get that. Now let's jump into something that you did that, that seems, yeah, it's another page of the great stuff that Frank churns out. Let's talk about your new book. Thank you, Ron. Uh, nothing pleases me more than to tell you the story of We Survived the Holocaust, the Felix and Bluma Goldberg story. Uh, I grew up in Columbia as a member of the Jewish community. I knew the Goldbergs. Um, Mr. Goldberg of blessed memory spoke at our synagogue before he passed away. And I'm sitting in the audience and I'm listening to this man's testimony about his harrowing experience of being a slave laborer. And it's, it's moved me 
in ways I can't even put into words. It's different than watching a video. It's different than reading a book. He's, he's telling me and the others gathered at the Day of Remembrance about what he experienced and how he survived. And as he stepped off the stage at the synagogue, he hands me a speech, and he says, Frank, do something with this. And I eventually approached the family and said, I'd like to tell your mother and your father's story. They both were survivors of the Holocaust. I'd like to tell your, your, your parents' story through a website. And two years ago, we unveiled storiesofsurvival.org. And I've been taking that website around the state and sharing it with educators and with others who would be interested in incorporating the Goldberg story into the classroom. Well, about two years ago, I woke up and I said, well, I've done that for teachers. What have I done for young people, many of whom today um, apparently lack essential knowledge about the Holocaust? And um, the graphic novel was born. And, and for your audience who doesn't know, don't know about graphic novels, they are the most popular texts, medium, genre in school libraries today. Um, the Diary of Anne Frank is out as a graphic novel. Every Shakespeare play is now a graphic novel. Um, this medium speaks to students in ways uh, only the school librarian can tell you. It's just extremely popular. I mean, if you walk into Barnes & Noble, the shelves of, uh, are full of, of, of fiction and nonfiction books um, uh, that are graphic novels. And um, I approached the family and I said, I'd like to do a graphic novel. And they said, what's that? And I pulled out the late Congressman John Lewis's March series and showed it to them. And they opened it up and said, wow, this is really impressive. And John Lewis tells a very interesting story himself. He followed Martin Luther King Jr., as you know. And Martin Luther King used to distribute a comic book about himself to young people. And people said, Dr. King, why are you sharing comic books with kids? He said, well, this is my story, and this is the medium that they pay attention to. And John Lewis kind of followed the same, the same model. I, I thought a graphic novel that uh, visually tells the story of the Goldbergs from the moment they were born until they were liberated and immigrated to South Carolina would be compelling. And that's what we've done. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually here at the school librarians conference sharing the graphic novel with um, uh, librarians from all over the state because the, because of the Goldberg family donated um, a book to every middle school and high school in the state. And that's what we're here doing. Wow. In the whole state? Yes. That's wonderful. Yeah. And we've created a teacher guide. So I'll tell you the website for the book is the same title, we survived the holocaust.com and anybody can go and download the teacher guide for free and the book is available at your favorite bookstore and I'm giving all of my royalties to Holocaust education efforts in our state because we just have to continue to tell this story. We've got way too much Holocaust denial and distortion today, not only in our state but in our country. Anti-Semitism is, is on the rise, as we know it, and our book covers anti-Semitism as well. So why a graphic novel, Frank? I mean, um, again, I, I would describe it as, and pardon me for this analogy, because I'm new to the game. It's a comic book uh, of sorts, but on steroids, obviously, where you have the characters portrayed, they're drawn, they're speaking, the, the dialect. I can see why kids would be drawn to that. Was that your sole 
uh, inspiration to making this happen, to make sure that you reach that demographic that was sorely lacking in education on the subject? Absolutely. We knew the graphic novel speaks to this age group, uh, what we call the YA, the young adults. So this book is aimed at the middle school and high school student. And you're, you're right, to, to many people, a, a graphic novel looks like a comic book, but I would describe it as much more professionally produced, um, uh, written professionally, uh, illustrated professionally. There are some award-winning illustrators out there, and I'm proud to say that Tim Ogline was my illustrator, and he, he did a, a fantastic job. I mean, I was uh, writing scenes and writing dialogue and Zooming with Tim every week as he created these images, and I, I, I was blown away. Um, in fact, uh, throughout this process, I kept saying, this must be what it's like to be a screenwriter, to write scenes and, and dialogue for, for this couple and for this, uh, this book. And I, I will tell you, there was an image that came to me about six months ago. Bluma and her family are seen running from their home, just set a fire by the Nazis. And I looked at that image, and I said, oh, my God, this is Ukraine. This is exactly what's happening today in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. People are being chased from their homes for no reason. They don't know where they're going to sleep that night. They don't know where their next meal is going to come from. They don't know if they'll see the sun rise tomorrow. And I'm sure they must have said, God, where are you? Are so you powerful. Will I, will, will I live to see another day? We hear that from lots of Holocaust survivors, probably all of them. I look in the, the the short amount of time we have left uh, because you're a great guest and these interviews go quickly when the guest is great. Uh, I must tell you, I read the book. It's phenomenal, so I give it my stamp of approval. I think I told you I, I read it in one or one and a half nights, something to that effect. What has the family said to you? I mean, what kind of feedback are you getting from these folks that you honored with this book, Ron? Uh, they are absolutely blown away. I heard one family member say, Frank, you brought my parents back to life. I heard wow. another family member say, Frank, my grandchildren's grandchildren have this book to read. And it's just, it's, it's, it's floored me. And I speak to synagogues and Jewish centers. Uh, I, I look for the opportunity to share uh, the book. But when I do speak, uh, I want the family members to be with me. And they, and they graciously come and speak lovingly of their parents and of this story. So I'm, I'm incredibly blessed to have been able to tell this story, and I'm blessed that you all have invited me to share it um, with you, with your audience today. Well, Frank, well done. Uh, hang in there while I uh, put out the big close here. Uh, thanks to Frank Baker for making himself available today. Check out his websites. It'll be all over the podcast site. And uh, reminding you, you're listening to Energy Matters in the Classroom with Robin Berlinski. We're available wherever fine podcasts are available, as well as South Carolina's 1250 WTMA Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock from our home base in Charleston, South Carolina. Robin, see you next time. Frank, thanks again. Take care. Thanks, Frank. <laughs>